It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. And welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I have two people in the studio with me, and uh, we're here to talk about a couple of things, somewhat related, I suppose you could say, uh, some artwork as well as, uh, as a film. And uh, I'm going to introduce you first to Barbara Fisher, who is the Executive Director of the Art Museum of the University of Toronto. Now, Barbara, uh, as I mentioned, uh, is at the University of Toronto, where she holds the position of Associate Professor, Teaching Stream, and Director of Master of Visual Studies, the Curatorial Studies in the John H. Daniels Facility of Architecture, Landscape, and Design. And she previously held the curatorial positions at the Walter Phillips Gallery, the Art Gallery of Ontario, and the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery, as well as directorship of the Blackwood Gallery. Her curatorial work focuses on contemporary art and its histories, encompassing the internationally acclaimed circulating exhibition of general idea editions from 1967 to 1985, and the multi-partnered survey of the Conceptual Art of Canada, which toured nationally and internationally from 2010 to 2013. And she has curated and also produced solo exhibitions for Rebecca Belmore, James Carl, Wendy Coburn, Melanie Gillian, and it goes on. Uh, she has uh, the curated the Mark Lewis for the Canadian Pavilion at the 53rd Venice Biennial and was the recipient of the 2008. This is a word I get stuck on. How do you say that one? Um, oh, Hanatitian. Hanatitian. That's an <laughs> award of curatorial excellence in contemporary art. So it's very, uh, it, it's a, 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 I'm very pleased to have you here with us, Barbara. Thanks for joining us here today. Well, thank you for having us. It's really great to be here. And uh, before we move on, let me introduce our, our other guest who is sitting right next to you. And that is Dr. Zachariah Knuck. And uh, he was born, uh, he has a great, interesting story. We don't often get to be able to share this kind of, of history uh, about people because he was born in 1957 in a sod house on Baffin Island. So, you know, that's not everybody's experience, I can tell you. So Zachariah was, uh, was a carver in 1981 when he sold three sculptures, I love this, in Montreal to buy a home video camera and 27-inch TV, TV to bring back to Iglulik, in Nunavut, if, uh, and the, that community had already voted twice to refuse any access to outside television due to lack of Inuktitut programming. Now, that's an interesting comment to make because it, it kind of uh, touches slightly on an experience I know from my own community of Six Nations, where there is uh, there was someone who was very learned in language, and he always said, we need to document our histories because the languages are being lost, and soon there's not enough speakers to know how to, for, how to carry this knowledge on. And he received a lot of uh, flack about documenting and, and, and putting these things onto film. So I kind of relate to these, these kind of comments when I hear them. Now, of course, Zachariah Kanuk, you may have heard of him from uh, the Fast Runner film that came out in 2001. And uh, he has a new film now that has premiered at TIFF and uh, just a couple of days ago, but I'm sure that you'll be able to catch this in, in other areas. And it is entitled, One Day in the Life of Noah, and how do you say that last name? Piwaktuk. Um, which sounds very interesting. I was able to see the, uh, the trailer for that, and it looks fascinating. And I must say, it's always interesting to see films from the far north in that area. I always think it's such a beautiful uh, place to film 
because it just your subjects stand out so much on that landscape because there's nothing to distract you. Uh, Barbara, why don't we stop, uh, start with you. Uh, the arts collective ISUMA, I believe, is, is one of the things you're here to talk about. Uh, yes, thanks for having me. And it's actually um, the occasion really is... Um, uh, there are a number of occasions that are conjoined. Yes. Um, so... Um, Zach is here for the film festival to feature the new film, which yep. just um, showed a couple of days ago mm -hmm. on Friday. And the film will also be shown at the Toronto, at the first or the inaugural Toronto Biennial of yes, Art. Yes, yes. Uh, it will be uh, featured there mm -hmm. uh, in the form of an installation. So that's a really big event also. Sure and we're it's opening on the 20th. And that's connected to the Venice Biennale, where the film was first shown um, to an international audience. Uh, the Venice Biennale was, uh, was just a tremendous event, um, and it really was the first um, Inuit presentation in that international showcase. Um, it was just a major international exhibition. And um, on top of that, we are opening tomorrow an exhibition that looks at um, a number of uh, films and television series that Isuma has produced over quite a span of time. One of the things, uh, um, Isuma is so well known for the film Atanajwad. I think er so many people recognize mm. who Isuma is and uh, because the film mm. was shown um, in so many places. Uh, in Europe and uh, here, uh, but perhaps not everyone is so familiar with the scope of Isuma's work, which really ranges from documentaries to television series to feature films to audio collections to featuring and creating a new portal that's called Isuma TV, um, featuring work by other artists. Um, so we wanted to make this exhibition, which will start tomorrow evening and runs to the end of November, to introduce the work of Isuma mm. to and, and the broader scope of the work of Isuma um, at the university to our audience there, but hopefully to a really large audience also in Toronto. And, and if I'm not mistaken, people can go online to see uh, some of this these Absolute. live features. They can see previously recorded things on that uh, Zoom, Izuma uh, website, correct? That's right. Um, Izuma, and I should let Zach talk about that, but uh, Izuma has um, for many years really uh, work to bring an Inuit perspective to um, the to the to the world at large, and to change the media landscape. I think from an Inuit point of view, it's a huge achievement in my opinion. Mm. And Isuma TV is uh, one of those phenomenal places where you can see now over seven thousand video by Aboriginal and Indigenous people from all around the world in over 70 languages. It's really unprecedented. It's um, just, it. I think it just alters how um, the South in Canada and then how internationally there is now a forum where um, you can hear and see voices that are, because of language, not often heard themselves. Um, and um, I think it changes the politics of um, the presence of indigenous peoples really around the world, I think, all too. 
Zach, you actually... Because of what Izuma has been... And you co-founded co Izuma, yes? Doing. 1991, I believe it was? Yes. So what did you, what did you hope to achieve when you, when you initially set that up? What were you, what were you thinking? What were you, what were you wanting to bring out? Well, um, I w what I was thinking is that I'm, I'm going to be a grandfather. And I'm going to have to tell my grandchildren about my culture. And I wanted to know what my culture is all about. Um, what am I going to say if they, my grandchildren ask me, what is shamanism? Mm. Your grandpa has to know. So, <laughs> so I went back and researched. We're still researching. Um, these are evolving stories. Sometimes there's a new catchy story about uh, um, stories that... Uh, like the latest one I just heard was about a spirit, uh, a raven spirit that would come down when this uh, person calls the mother, comes down and becomes her mother. I mean, I've never heard stories mm. like that. And I w want to someday make films about maybe shamanism, shaman wars, good and evil. What is it all about? Um, what is taboo? I mean, what what happens mm. when taboos are broken? Um, all that I I wanted to know. So, in my old age, pretty soon that I will tell my children, ah, you can watch this video. Mm. I don't have to speak. The video can speak for mm. itself. Mm. Right. That that's that's great. It's the great way of documenting these things. Because our culture is oral. Nothing yes. is written down. Yes. Every agreements and marriages are all done in the head. Uh, so that's perfect way of recording. Yeah, it's interesting that film and any kind of, I guess now recording that we do technologically is kind of bringing the oral tradition full circle because so much of it is now doesn't have to be recorded. It is an oral tradition of handing things down, much like it was in the past. Um, you know, uh, I, I had a brief, uh, a, a brief uh, encounter with the North when I worked with APTN uh, Television. Uh, they sent me up to Iqaluit and also to uh, um, Akviet uh, for a week at a time, once in November, once in, in, in July, uh, June. So I, I, you know, very brief uh, uh, encounter there, but it was really wonderful to go. And, and and be there because you know uh, that you know to learn about the circumpolar area and how the, the north has its own way of seeing things and I mean literally seeing things because when you view the earth I remember seeing the map you guys don't look at North America the same way it's reversed it's from the north looking down I remember seeing that and I go yeah it is a completely different and the and of course just the weather itself is it, it has extremes. It's so extreme in terms of what you guys deal with. And, um, and that alone gives you an entirely different perspective on how you look at life and, and the things that you, you bring forward. What can you tell us about why you thought it was important about this new film that's come out that you're doing? Why did you think it was important to share that story? It was a time uh, when Inuit were all scattered on the land and now they're being gathered into these settlements uh, so they could 
probably manage them better. If you get sick, there's mm. a health center. If you want to go to the store, there's a store. Anyway, you have to collect your family allowance, and your children have to go to school. Right. Um, so this is a, what the government was sort of selling the, the Inuit on in terms of trying to bring them into these communities and get them off the land, I guess. But, exactly. they, but yeah. they also tried to do other things, right? They tried to take away uh, some of the, the traditional ways of living in doing so. Yes. And in some places, uh, they would put them on a plane and ship, ship them to a nearby community and bulldoze their houses. There was a, there's a lot of things that we're hearing more about in terms of what happened in the North, as with many indigenous people right across Canada, about what the policies were and some of the things that happened, such as killing all the dogs, yeah. your sled dogs. Exactly, to keep them in the mm-hmm. community. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and assimilate, right? Just like it was uh, anywhere else, bringing people to, to assimilate them into the, the modern society. But you guys were able to hang on, as in many communities, and, and keep the language alive and, and keep a lot of that going, yes? Yes. But I imagine it was also a struggle. Well, you go to school, you have to speak English. And once you get out of school, you go back to your house and you start, spark, start speaking your own language. So this... No morning. Yeah. So the new film that you've got out now, is, it's a day in the life, and it's the day when that government uh, agent comes mm-hmm. to try and get uh, this particular gentleman and his family to assimilate and move into a community, yes? I heard that story. It actually happened. Mm. Uh, our late partner, Paris Kulitrik, who was our elder in our group, uh, told me that story of how this meeting t- took place on the ice it was June, and they were going to go hunting somewhere, and they encountered this uh, uh, government agent. That uh, and There was a meeting outside, and, and I researched it more. And, you know, we're filmmakers, um, and it's oral because it's very near. It only happened in 1961, mm-hmm. and still nothing written. Um, so I was lucky to get one one more person that was in that meeting still alive, and he told the story of what was happening, what's being said, mm-hmm. um, and so we got this terrific story of one day this happened, and we just shot it. And and it is a wonderful story. Just from the trailer that I saw, it was a wonderful moment to. Just see, of course, the way it was filmed. It's filmed beautifully. Uh, to hear the interactions of the of the people from the community as these people approach, as they watch him slowly coming across the horizon, um, and and it's a, a really really is a wonderful uh, view into the world that that your, your people have have lived and and to see. But there's a lot of humor, of course, in just like the things that you do that you put humor into these things as well. Yeah, we we have to have humor. Mm-hmm. We have to have humor when we have three day blizzard. We're stuck mm-hmm. in an igloo, and we have to have humor. Just like being stuck in an elevator for three days, <laughs> you have to have. <laughs> yeah, very much. <laughs> Except maybe colder, and not, you know. But uh, <laughs> but do these 
distressing too. Uh, there's a lot of tension in mm. that moment and in this conversation that goes yeah, on. Yes, it's yes. Um, uh, this kind of willful misunderstanding that boss has um, and or this his attempt to say that he understands but he doesn't understand um, so there's um, humor and at the same time enormous stress just in this conversation that holds the film uh, Barbara I'd like to come back to you for a moment and talk to, to you about the art exhibit and, and the Toronto Biennial Art uh, that as you already mentioned about the film uh, it is a huge uh, exhibit that's happening over several months uh, I believe right into the to next year, starting uh, very very soon, September twentieth. Oh, December. Right. Uh, yeah, it starts September. Yeah. The biennial starts on September nineteen and twenty with yeah. previews, and then continues to December one. Right. And um, uh, the one day in the life of Noah Piogatuk is uh, featured there as an installation, and um, we are partnered with the biennial mm -hmm. as the art museum mm -hmm. is, and the exhibition will. Uh, present um, a number of really um, uh, sort of major works from Isuma, mm. uh, but also introduce peop um, people uh, to um, the different platforms that Isuma uses. So we're featuring Nunavut, a series that was done in 1995 and um, um, has so much of um, this kind of storytelling in it and this uh, uh, look back at what um, time may have been like and how it was experienced in the 1940s and 50s. Um, but then we are also including Hunting with My Ancestors, which was just done a, couple, a year ago um, and looks at that very same um, question of living on the land, but from a contemporary perspective. So the exhibition tries to um, really look at Izuma's work in this sort of extended way and to show how, um, Im I think, how the pro that project, Izuma's project, has been to revisit this point of colonial encounter again and again from a different, from a lens um, as um, one, as, as something that happened in the past, but also how it is lived now and um, what um, uh, Inuit people are doing, how to cope with that moment and how to also be increasingly politically um, engaged. And media is a really important aspect of that. Um, we are hoping to show live stream in November the um, public hearings that are continuing around the Mary River um, Iron Ore Company, um, which is a recent major development, which is sure to change the landscape and um, interfering with hunting grounds up north. And um, Izuma is live streaming the public hearings, which was and is enormously important because it would not otherwise um, be something that where there would be an Inuit voice um, um, heard. I think through the um, through the platform of mm. the live streaming right. to even communicate to Inuit communities. Right now, you mentioned this live streaming uh, a number of times, and and I went to the site uh, to see what was going on there, and it does it, it gives you a list of different things. But I like the live cam that's there right now that you can see 
Uh, I'm not sure what community it is, but it was it was interesting to see that live cam. And for people that are interested, they can go check out things there as well right now. And you can find that at uh, uh, on the web at www.isuma.tv backslash live. That's but if you go there, you can find out and list a uh, list of all those things that you can uh, get a get a a look at what we're talking about more and and check that out for yourselves. Um, is there anything else in terms of, but there's an art exhibit. Did you want to talk about any of the art or anything? Um, the art exhibit is the film, the films. Oh, okay. um, so there are, um, the Nunavut series is uh, composed of 13 episodes. Uh, Hunting with my ancestors composed of seven episodes. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of film. Um, so take your time when you come to visit the art museum. Um, we have a small cinema set up um, we have various screening rooms set up. There's a reading room with the publications that Isuma has produced um, and tablets where people can see trailers of other works that have been done. So it's all about film, really, mm. with a few objects, but I won't give them okay. away. Okay, yes, you got to keep some intrigue there. Great. And then, of course, as you mentioned, uh, it's going to be running from September 18th to November 30th with regular gallery hours as well. Yeah. Um, Tuesdays through Saturdays from 12 to 5. Wednesdays, we're open till 8. Okay. Is there anything else you guys would like to mention that we haven't touched on? So much. Yeah. <laughs> so many stories. There are so many but stories. I can think of a few myself. Um, mm. uh, uh, certainly, uh, uh, briefly, when I was in the north, I remember when I was there in Akviet, and I was, I was staying at someone's house. And, of course, there it's flat. It's, there's no trees. There's nothing. And there's a bay, and it was about 10 degrees, but there was still, you know, the first of the week, the snow was really quite piled high. Uh, high. And, um, and they started talking about the hill. And I, I was looking the hill. I don't see any hill. You know, it's flat. <laughs> but by the end of the week, of course, I, you know, not only had the snow melted, but my eyes were now adjusting to be able to see those nuances. And I went, oh, yeah, the hill is over there. I can see that now. And the other thing I mentioned is that when I got back, um, I remember feeling very claustrophobic because I could no longer see the horizon. Mm. Uh, trees, buildings, they all made me feel very closed in. It's a very interesting experience. And also, Iglerik, we're 200 miles above the Arctic Circle. Mm. We're in the summertime. We have no night. Mm. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. both Iglerik and Avila are below the Arctic Circle, so... You didn't experience what... Not the full effect. Uh, because I remember I was doing Inuit, uh, Inuit, uh, knowledge, uh, Inuit Cree reconciliation mm. in northern Quebec in July. In my community, up in would the sun would be out, but down there, night comes and we have to make camp. So it's different. It is. And I remember, uh, uh, actually, they, they told me to get... B-roll when I was up there, just shoot everything, you know. So I was out there one night shooting uh, footage, and I looked at my watch. It was nine thirty, and it was still light. And then I didn't look back, and it was like twelve thirty in the morning, and it was still just as bright. And I hadn't realized how much time had passed. So, yeah, it, it's it's a very interesting and and different way of looking at things. Oh, one thing about climate, though, I will mention. And if nobody thinks that the North is affected by climate, I found this very very interesting. Even this was two thousand that uh, they showed me this lake that was there. And they said, this is where everyone used to go swimming. And they said, nobody goes there anymore. I said, why not? And they said, because it's dead. I said, what do you mean it's dead? They said, there's no fish, there's nothing in it. I said, how come? And they said, 
You know all that pollution you guys create down there? It comes up here in clouds and it showers down here and it killed the lake. Does that sound like a familiar story to you? I noticed this year there's hardly any ice in my area. Mm. Mm. All the ice that we bought around, not there. Mm. One of the films in the exhibition mm -hmm. is Inuit Knowledge and Climate Change, mm -hmm. a particular film which was um, uh, the first um, Inuk Tutuk language film on climate change mm -hmm. and um, also a really important document because it was um, it really tried to uh, show how Inuit themselves are experiencing the changes up north. Um, so that film is also in the exhibition, uh, and I think um, it presents us from, uh, from an Inuit perspective what the meaning of these changes are. Yeah. Well, we're all experiencing that, and I'm sure the North is no exception. We keep hearing about how the North is being affected, of course, as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Barbara and Zachariah, Nyawa um, Miigwech, Wunishi, and Koyanamik for coming in today and, and sharing with us. We really appreciate your time, and, and all the best with these projects uh, for both of you. <laughs> Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. In the second part of my show, Ian Cusan is a composer of art song, opera, and orchestral work. His work explores the Canadian Indigenous experience, including the history of the Métis people, the hybridity of mixed racial identity, and the intersection of Western and Indigenous cultures. And he is actually now the Canadian Opera Company the Canadian Opera Company's new in-house composer in residence since August of 2019, and he's going to continue in that position, I guess if all goes well, until 2021. <laughs> Let's hope. <laughs> a little bit of a joke there, and <laughs> hope you don't mind. It's great having you here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, Ian has a study with Jake Hedgie and Samuel Dolan, and piano with James Oh, how do I pronounce Anagnuson. that? Anagnuson. Anagnuson. Thank you for getting for clearing that up for me. At the Glenn Gould School. Uh, and he is the recipient of numerous awards and grants, including the Calmers Professional Development Grant, the National Aboriginal Achievement Foundation Award, and several grants through the Canadian Council, the Ontario Arts Council, and the Toronto Arts Council. Not too shabby. <laughs> Not too shabby. Now, listen, uh, your, your new position has put you, uh, I guess, in, in a bit of, a, of an interesting spot. You have to create some new music for this Louis Riel uh, piece. Yes. Now, is that something, let me ask you first off top, because when I read that, I thought, how often does that happen where you get to do something like that? You know, I think this might be the first time that new music has been created for a pre-existing opera. The opera mm -hmm. itself is... 50, 53 years old. In 1961? 67, it was 67, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, and so it's it's pretty rare to see, you know, new music coming into a, a work. Mm. Um, and I can't think of any other other contemporary operas that have had this kind of, um, this kind of experience. Now, there's a reason for that, of course, yes. why this is being changed. And I guess the other thing that makes this interesting with this Louis Real story is, as you mentioned, it's 50 years old or so. And when it was originally put on as a completely different animal, if I <laughs> would you agree, I, I would agree. Yeah, it was a, it was a completely different time in in, yeah. in the in the world in the country, mm. and uh, yeah, the the way that this. I mean, I think it's interesting to say that in '67, it, it, you know, to write to write an opera about 
a Canadian figure and for the, the creators to choose Louis Riel mm. in itself was quite uh, progressive uh, because, he, you know, controversial figure. The way the story was told mm. was, you know, of its time and I think looks different today. And hence, uh, at that time, it was, it was full of a lot of stereotypical images, a lot of stereotypical presentations. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I guess the story has changed. The story has changed. You know, this, the, the, the work was remounted in 2017, and it was um, an opportunity for the Canadian Opera Company and the National Arts Centre that were co-presenting it to really reassess it and really think about how, how was it going to be told in, in a contemporary context. And, and so the director and the, the, the designers and all of the, the creative crew that was involved were able to rethink it and, and, and say, what does a, a historic work like this sound like in in a in a contemporary setting where we have different information and we go about telling stories differently and and part of that telling a story differently is of course uh, engaging people that have the heritage and, and are shared from this story and i believe you are metis is absolutely, that absolutely yeah but where is yours that hail for you for you is it winnipeg area or whereabouts my family's from the georgian bay area they've okay. lived there for for the last you know century or so, mm-hmm. and uh, and before that from Fort William area, mm. and did work in in the Red River and that sort of um, the typical sort of trade routes. Right. Yeah. Now uh, again, uh, you're not the only Indigenous and Métis person involved with the show. There's a number of other people that are familiar to me uh, um, uh, through, that have been involved with this, yeah. and also I guess not only in the back end, but yeah. people on on stage as well. Absolutely. You know, and 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 so coming to this, the, the rewriting of this this uh, piece of music, mm. um, I think it I think it's important to have a voice that is more connected to that community and uh, to to sort of think about what what worlds or what sound worlds could be brought could mm-hmm. be brought to the story. Again, it wasn't originally written by um, by Métis people, and um, you know, to the best of my understanding, there wasn't a, a deep Métis connection even in the production itself. Well, this 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 uh, piece of the area, I guess I think yeah. that you are writing the music for, was actually taken from music from the West Coast, the Haida, I believe. So it was the Niska people, oh, Niska. and uh, and yeah. So it's interesting how that came about. Uh, the composer Harry Summers, he wrote a piece of music. He he had borrowed a melody from the Niska people. It was a song of mourning, mm. and he had created this sort of lullaby, I guess yeah. you could say, uh, for for the work and. Um, it, in 2017, there were a number of researchers when they were remounting the work um, that that came forward with this information that, in fact, this melody was appropriated, and it was taken out of context. It was used, um, you know, from a ceremonial context into an operatic context without permission, and uh, and then the question was, well, what do we what do we do? What do we do with that? And uh, and so a lot of conversations have happened over the last two two years, in particular with the Niska people, mm-hmm. um, with the estate of of Maver Moore and Harry Summers, yes, and with these two large organizations, the Canadian Opera Company and the National Arts Centre, right. to to say you know we need to right this wrong and we need to 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 come up with a, a better solution for how to how to put this opera on in the future. So. Having said that, and looking at the where the the piece came from originally, um, what what kind of a position that does that put you in? Where do you where do you go to look for finding the right piece or the right feel and, and approach this that I'm guessing still has to work within the overall piece itself? Correct? Absolutely, 
<laughs> it's a it's a tricky question, and you know that was the challenge coming to this. It was I I'm sort of inserting music into the middle of a work, uh, you know, three hour long work mm. that has a lot of history and a <laughs> lot of opinion about it, and uh, it's been heard by many many people. It's considered sometimes you know like the great Canadian opera, mm. um, and so. Coming into that is sort of like you walk carefully, or at least I felt I had to walk carefully. Right. You know, at the at the end of the day, there were questions of do I imitate the original composer? Do I just use mm. my own voice? Mm. And I, I decided that it would be best to, to use my own voice, uh, my own musical voice, and to try to write something that would be faithful to the original scene and that would work dramatically. So that if you were to watch the opera, it would feel like it fit in. Um, it It would it would meet the original intentions that the original creators had. So it was about honoring them, but it was also about making something new that yeah. was right. What is the overall, um, uh, uh, what's going on in this song? Yeah. You know, at the time that this that you have to write this music for. Yeah. So if, if you can imagine, if you were the audience member, you've, you've been at an intermission, so you've been having a drink in the lobby, mm. and you come back in, and this music opens the third act, okay. the third and final act. And it's a really simple, tender scene where Marguerite Riel, which is Louis Riel's wife, is singing to their child a lullaby. And it's it's really the quiet before the storm, because right after this, he, he is called back to Canada from Montana, and he then leads this rebellion resistance and um, and is is then, you know, convicted of treason and hanged. And so it is the the last quiet moment before that happens. And it's also a beautiful moment because she's singing to her child and she's singing of her hopes for what, what he will be, mm. who he will be. Now, the other thing that comes to mind when I, when I think of this, and it was kind of alluded to, I think, in, the, in some of the documents uh, or some of the writing about this as well, and, and that is just, I guess, you know, we are living in 2019 and the political world that we live in is, is in... An uproar to say in some ways, you might say, not only, you know, here in Canada, but around the world and south of the border. How do you, how do you, can you separate yourself from all those things (laughs) as you start writing this? It's, it's interesting. I, I, you know, I think with all of my work, I want to bring a level of consciousness of what's actually happening in the world today. Mm. So even in this case, it's the story, a story that happened a hundred and, you know, 130, Mm. 50 years ago. Uh, But what what are the kind of contemporary resonances that are happening today? And not only in this work, but any anything that I write, it has a reference to what's going on in the world. In particular, you know, fear the fears that we have, fears mm. of other, mm. the fear of the other is is something that comes up a lot. And um, and there's this really tenuous moment in this work where uh, there's a peaceful scene with a family that is about to be massively disrupted, and we can think of. This, the scenarios around the world where peaceful scenes of families are are di- disrupted, even in this in this country, um, so it it speaks something to today. Um, it speaks of 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 a, a beautiful indigenous family in this very personal private moment, um, and I I think it speaks of of what I hope we'll be able to see more of these these you know um, depictions of indigenous people that are are positive. Mm. that are hope-filled. I'm guessing that the that the new production represents some of that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yes? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I th- it'll be interesting to see future productions. 
um, we this this uh, this work the just the arias being performed as, as a standalone mm. um, at the National Arts Center and uh, and it's great because the the, the soprano singing it is Melody Courage who is Métis herself mm. and uh, it, it will be interesting to see how it how it will fit into future productions of the work but um, but but as this will stand as a concert piece. Um, I think it again is another picture of of, of indigenous presence um, on the stage as as the creators of the of a work, as the presenters of a work, as people have as as our people having agency in in the creation of work. Uh, there's a bunch of different questions running through my head here. Um, uh, first of all, when you you mention uh, Melanie Koresh, the, the mm-hmm. person is she is someone in in the cast is related to a previous person that is part of the history of this yeah um in the in the original cast of the so the 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 fully staged production in 2017 had um a range of of indigenous people that came that came into the into the work and were part of it um and that was an intentional choice of the of the of the uh the 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 companies remounting the work Mm. um yeah, I'm not sure what Melody's connection is to the the family, and I don't know mm. that she has a direct connection to them. Um, yeah, there, there's some mention of someone else though in the production that was uh, that was related to mm. to a lawyer that actually um, mm. uh, um, uh, was was against Riel, that was speaking, against, you know, not defending him, but uh, right. So the other thing though that that comes to mind is uh, instrumentation. Yeah. Sticking. How do you how do you deal with that in terms of I, I guess uh, you know in terms of your approach to this? Yep. Well, it's it's what was at my disposal was the same forces that that uh, Harry Summers was mm. able to to use for the orchestra. He had a huge percussion section. In mm. fact, it it requires it requires six players to play it, which is enormous wow. for for um, an yeah. opera. And and you know I I wanted to capture something of the simplicity of of the original scene, which only used flute and a few um, mm. percussion instruments. Mm. What I ended up using quite a bit was the flute, um, the harp, and the string section primarily, just to create a warmth. A kind of if you can imagine like a the the rocking cradle mm. would be this warm sort of texture underneath mm. the voice. So it's quite a simple setting, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's it it in that way fits well with the simplicity of the scene. Now, when you say flute, mm-hmm. uh, folks, they think of the European flute that is standard yeah. in orchestras. Yeah, but of course, we all know there is a traditional oh, yeah. flute that is wood yes. uh, and uh, it really traditional. They bur- they were burned out yeah. uh, with with hot rocks, I believe, and, and then uh, and then tuned mm-hmm. that way. Um, are, are you familiar with with other instruments other than, yeah. you know, uh, those kind of things being incorporated into... Yeah, in, in, in this work, there, there aren't any others, but I have friends that are composers um, that, are, that do write specifically for traditional flutes mm. and tradi- other traditional indigenous instruments. Uh, Barbara Kroll's got a piece that is actually premiering the same, or that it's not premiering, but rather being performed the same night as, as this, um, this work that I wrote in Ottawa that, that has a flute soloist. And even though the... the the flutist is from the orchestra uh, playing a traditional metal instrument. Mm. Um, Barbara asks the player to, to create some of the sounds of the, of the wood flute, mm. of the, mm. um, the softness of yeah, the, the breathiness. The of yeah, the yeah. Things, yeah. And so she, she, in her own work, um, 
has the the performers actually making those kind of mm. sounds, whether that traditional instrument is available or not. Right. Yeah. Um, so can I ask you, uh, as, as a, a Métis person, mm-hmm. and uh, of course opera is a very European, very structured, uh, very formal uh, way of performance. Yes. Uh, some, of the, some of the things I've seen, this yeah. is an obser- observation, where, where indigenous uh, people are put in these positions to either perform, it, it seems odd right to see that because because indigenous people are looser you know what i mean <laughs> so do you know what i'm saying about I know that what you're saying, can yeah. you add anything to that yeah no it's it's a great thought i've had this conversation a lot uh, with folks who who sort of wonder is this just kind of attaching ourselves onto a european form i think that you know why why i've loved opera since i was a kid mm. was because it was so much like storytelling the mm. storytelling that i heard my grandmother mm. tell me mm. um it's an incredible vehicle for telling stories in a in a almost overwhelming way because you've got the sound of a, of a live orchestra and voices and and set design and costume and and so it it's like enacted or living story and i think it has in that sense a lot of parallel to um, indigenous practice within within ver- the various cultures. Um, so uh, so for that reason, I'd say it's actually quite close. And I think you know there are there are more and more indigenous uh, people that are 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 highly trained singers, uh, musicians playing in orchestras, composers, designers, uh, you know, lighting designers, set designers, costume designers that are working in opera. And so there's a kind of indigenous renaissance happening within the opera world where leadership from indigenous people is is actually leading these productions and i think that is very exciting <laughs> that is very exciting it's very cool to hear the way you describe that and it's very true it mm-hmm. is a form of storytelling absolutely yeah. and it is uh, you can't take away anything from any of those areas you just mentioned from the singers down to the set designers the light designers there is a massive amount of work that is entailed yeah. and needs to be put together to bring an opera together yeah. Uh, certainly the vocal the vocal challenges that are there for yes. the singers is nothing to be uh, you know uh, 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 what's the word uh, discounted yeah uh, so so yeah you're absolutely right in that in that sense it's it's very much like uh, indigenous storytelling yeah. it's a great vehicle I, I I I hope that companies will um, will you know foster these voices in uh, these indigenous voices to be to be creating new new work that is exciting. And I, I, they are already doing that, and um, it'll be exciting to see them continue. Yeah, you know, speaking of, of voices and, and those kind of things, uh, I was wondering about this a little while ago. Um, powwow singing. Yeah. Now, those guys, those guys have some lungs on them, <laughs> and they can, you know, they're singing, of course, in their head yeah. voice and just singing this falsetto stuff, but it's powerful. Yes. And they don't blow their vocal cords. Absolutely. So there's something to be said about that. It's true. I was having this very conversation just a couple of days ago at the Canadian Opera Company with one of the, the main vocal coaches there. And she was describing how when a tenor in opera sings, you know, the high C or the high B, it it is so close to what is happening in the powwow singing. Mm. 
Um, and, and it's actually not that far off. Both of those things are not that far off from a scream. It's kind of yeah, a, yeah. It's, just a, it's just characterized a certain way. Right. So there's actually a lot of parallel. <laughs> and I think the closer you look, you do see those, those parallels between what is often considered a European form, but is really grown into something that, inco- that in- can include so many other things, so many other types of sound. Now, you mentioned this is going to be uh, having a performance, and yeah. I think it's coming up rather soon. Yes, yes. It's, it's happening Thursday this week. Uh, and it's, it's really exciting to get to hear your work uh, on a stage in front of an audience because that's really where it comes to life. Mm. Um, the work, as it's written down and as it's even performed or, re- or rehearsed, I should say, is only a half thing. It's mm. once you get bodies mm-hmm. in a room mm-hmm. um, that it, it it really gets completed. And it's it's extra special that the world premiere is going to happen in conjunction with the huge Indigenous um, arts presence that's now at the National Arts Centre. Um, this The first two weeks of this season has really been dedicated to programming Indigenous art, you know, art and, and works right across the whole, um, the whole organization. And so... This is one of many events happening in these two weeks that are celebrating presence there. So that's on September the 19th at the National Arts Centre in Ottawa. So everybody can go check that out and see this. So that means it's, it's completed. How long did it take you to write this? Haha. <laughs> um, it's a, it's a six-minute work. I mm. probably took from beginning to end maybe a couple of weeks. Mm. Yeah, and, and that would be orchestrating it and everything. Yeah. Mm. Uh, did you did you sweat a lot in doing this? Or? <laughs> I sweat a lot before I started. Okay, and then be thinking, oh boy, all the expectation that that's riding on me, and then I just put all of that aside. Yeah, and I did what I always do, and I sat down and wrote what I thought was, you know, a compelling and beautiful mm. aria. And so you've seen this, you've heard it performed, obviously, heard it sung in rehearsal, yeah, yeah. yeah. and but never heard the full orchestration, so it'll be new to me as well, right? To hear the, the and of course that will always add something to oh, it as yeah. well. Absolutely, it brings it right to life. Yeah, yeah. well, that's great. Congratulations! Thank now, you. what time on Thursday? It's happening at seven seven p.m. Seven p.m. at the National Arts Center in Ottawa. So um, be sure to try and check that out. If, hopefully, hopefully there's still some seats available. People can go online few. to find out to, to the National Arts Center for tickets, I'm sure. Yep. Uh, so check that out. We'd love to hear back from people uh, after they've had a chance to see this and see what they thought about this. Uh, Ian, congratulations. Thank you so much. And, and uh, congratulations uh, also on you know your residency and best of luck in the future. And I certainly hope that we can have you back on again and hear about new stuff. You're I'd love on. to come back anytime. Uh, great. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you. All right. Bye. Take care. You watch. And welcome back to Moment of Truth. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And I actually have a guest to tell you about that's popped into the studios. He's actually from a neighboring First Nation and First Nation radio station. Ganawage K103.7 in Montreal. You said Ganawage really nicely. Why, thank you. I was going to say Gahnawage. Well, well, that would have been, that would, there's, there's two meanings. One, Gahnawage means by the creek, and Gahnawage means by the river, See? by the rapids. Right. And that's, that's why uh, we actually are on the rapids of the St. Lawrence River. You sure are. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I've been there. I've seen it. Yeah, you, you've sure. been to the community? I have. And what'd you think? It's small. 
But it's it's really nice, though. I mean, I love the old buildings that are mm-hmm. there. It's a, it's a cool community. It is. It's very small. Um, when something happens in the community, you, you really get a sense of community <laughs> because everybody comes together and helps. Mm-hmm. You don't get that in a big city, right. but in a small community, uh, we really come together. When Even if, uh, if there's a house fire or something, mm-hmm. the community comes together mm-hmm. and, uh, and raises some funds. So uh, let, me, let me just step in here to say the voice you are now hearing is James Java Jacobs, and he is the program director for K1037 at, in Ganawage at the radio station. Uh, so, James, uh, it's, it's a pleasure to have you here. Well, thanks. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. What a beautiful facility you guys have. Well, it is, but you know, uh, it's 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 not like community radio that in in many ways, of mm-hmm. course. Community radio, uh, I started at Six Nations, so I'm right. very familiar with uh, with the community station format, the way it's set up, which is not that much different from what you guys run in in Ganawagi. Well, no, but because we're near a big city, uh, we focus on community events, but we, we want to have a big sound. We want to sound like a mm. major market radio, mm-hmm. but we don't want to take away from the community. Uh, so we promote community events. All our newscasts mm-hmm. are local, mm-hmm. and in a small community, uh, sometimes that's tough. Um, but we localize certain events. For example, if uh, there's a, an iron working accident in New York City, uh, there's so many community members that we, we localize it. We bring it back uh, to how it affects the community. And uh, that's our, our slogan. We lead local. Mm. And uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's working for us. Yeah, great. Now, listen, let's talk about the station a little bit. It's been around a long time. 1981, the uh, first time it went on the air. I was... I was just 11 years old, and, and it was big news in the community when, when K1037 went on the air. Uh, at school, they, they ran it over the um, intercom system. Oh, yeah. And as soon as I heard that, I fell in love with the, with, with the radio. And nice. that's, I knew that was what I wanted to do. So, yeah, it's been around uh, since 1938 years. Mm. It'll be 39 in, oh, my goodness, I can't remember. Next year. <laughs> no, I have to tell you that I have a, a, another sort of connection to the community. Let's see if you're familiar with this, if you don't right. mind me throwing this at uh, you. Throw it at me. I might miss. Are you familiar with Gahnawage Wage? Gahnawage Wage. No. The song Gahnawage Wage? No, sing it for me. I just did. <laughs> Great voice. Well, uh, we I did a video with some kids that, okay. that were singing this song in the language. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's all it's all about um, uh, it's that that uh, that song that country hit, uh, which I can't remember what it was called now. Um, hadn't going back to Jackson that song. Oh, uh, Johnny Cash. Yeah, yeah, Johnny Cash, and uh, and and but they translated somebody translated it into. Gatnawage Wage, and there's two kids. Uh, okay, say, I, I, you're probably uh, talking about the, uh, the 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 man who translated and and made it into a Ganyageha yes. song. Yep. Uh, his name was uh, Jorogote Gilbert. Uh, yes, and he did that. Yes. to a lot of popular songs and, yep. and put his own words in. So that's probably but where that came from. It was, and these two kids sang it, mm-hmm. and it was. I mean, it was a big hit in both your communities, yeah. right? Uh, because uh, we we uh, we went there and we filmed the, the people singing it all over the place. Yeah. So uh, so I, I don't know where those kids are now. I don't know what they're doing. But how long uh, ago is that? They pro- they probably have oh kids boy. of their own now. They probably might. <laughs> they probably might. Uh, but anyway, let's get back to your, your radio station now. Sure. As a community radio station, 
it, it, you know, it, it's um, uh, on a reserve. Um, there are challenges with with any community radio station in, in reserves. Mm-hmm. Um, funding, trying to find money, uh, get get it staffed. There's a lot of volunteers that run these community stations. There's there's a lot of volunteers, but we um, are lucky enough that we every Friday night, and and I think this is well, I know true. What's coming. I th- <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> I, I think it's true with any community radio station, not just native, but even non-native uh, community stations. Bingo. Bingo. <laughs> Bingo is a big money generator, and that's yeah. that's been the lifeline of K1037 since its inception back 38 years ago. Yeah. Every single year. However, um, we, we also had some challenges because during the summer, uh, Bingo is slow and, and, and money doesn't yeah. come in yeah. as, as much as we would like. Uh, so we needed to become in the radio business. We needed to get into the books, mm. and, and we did that finally. So now when we go to potential clients and they say, well, let me see your numbers, we can actually say, here, now we mm-hmm. have our numbers. And mm-hmm. that's a lot it, – yeah. it, it, it's a lot easier for us right. now to get yep. uh, to get advertising. It's very true. I, yeah. I tried to sell advertising with our radio station on Six Nations, and I know those challenges. Yeah, you always get that. That was the biggest block. Well, yep. what are your numbers? Yep. Well, we don't know. We, we know Billy down the road listens. You know <laughs> what I mean? Right. <laughs> Yeah. We, should we get him to come in? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he can validate for us. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I listen. But but now we actually have the numbers and we we know uh, the age, we know where they're listening, we know when they're mm. listening, where they're mm. listening from. It's great. Yeah, it's a great tool. So so how is the station doing that way in terms of listening? Uh, we uh, we were actually surprised. Mm. Um, I was I was I didn't know what to think. Yeah. But we we average about fifty thousand a week, which is not bad for a small community radio no. station. Two hundred and fifty watts. You're running at. Yeah, it. we're running at two hundred fifty watts. Yeah. I think our uh, our geolocation is yeah. is is very good though mm-hmm. for us because I, I think we have fifty three percent of our listeners on the South Shore and forty seven on the island of Montreal. Mm. So yeah, that works for us. That's great. Um, you know, have a can I can I interject with a bingo story for you? Absolutely. <laughs> so. Be one. When I was doing news at Six Nations, mm-hmm. uh, I went out to cover the the uh, the the, um, the the games, the Indigenous games out on Vancouver Island one year. Okay, it was so. It's the opening of of the the uh, the Indigenous games. It's a Sunday afternoon. It's four o'clock in the afternoon, Vancouver time. Okay, now back in Ontario, Six Nations, it's seven o'clock. Okay. There's like 250 Six Nations athletes that I'm walking into the, the stadium with. It's, you know, it's going crazy. It's like the Olympics. It's great. Right. Like, cheers, all these people. I got people lined up to get on the air with me, right? I phone the radio station and I say, get me on the air. I got all these people who are walking into the games. It's so exciting. There's all this stuff. And they said, we're not putting you on the air. I went, what? They said, it's bingo. <laughs> You know, we. Just, uh, I, I know exactly what you are talking about. Uh, this just happened a couple of weeks ago. Uh, President's Cup Lacrosse, mm, the, the yeah. national, yeah, yeah. the national <laughs> tournament, was in Ganawage. Mm. So we got the rights to broadcast every single nice. Ganawage Mohawks yeah. game. Yeah. However, one was at uh, like supposed to be at eight o'clock. <laughs> And everybody was like, well, you know, we're going to have to run that <laughs> online only because you can't touch bingo. You can't touch you, it. You just, you can't because it's it's so, like I said, it's it's our big money maker. Yeah. And, and 
God love lacrosse. We 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 do, and we support uh, the sport. Right. But you can't mess with bingo. Mess with, <laughs> not even for a couple of minutes. <laughs> not no, not even for a couple of minutes. Uh, but but luckily the the time changed to five o'clock because mm. we run our bingos at seven thirty. So mm. we, we we did the the game on the air as mm. opposed to online only. Right. <laughs> That's great. That's great for people that don't know, uh, you know, all the ins and outs and what goes on 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 uh, reserve uh, community radio stations. But there's a lot of fun, of course, that happens at these stations as well. There is. Um, I, I've worked at other radio stations, and the the thing about community radio is the amount of freedom that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying every other commercial station uh, falls into this category, but you become almost robotic in in other stations, like like the major markets. You you have a certain time you have to speak. You have certain things you have to say, mm-hmm. and I think community radio is a is a great place for people who want to get into radio. It's a great place to learn. Mm-hmm. There's people there who will teach you. And at K one hundred three seven, so many people have passed through those doors who went on to become uh, big Montreal radio stars. You know? Nice, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's there's uh, an alumni right now who's who just signed a really nice contract at a at a major market? He's a, he's a, he's the morning guy now, mm. at a at a big Montreal radio station. So, yeah, I think we're really proud of that. Like you come here, you you learn your chops, and then you and then you move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a great uh, it's a great spot for people to learn. Just like you said, yeah, it's uh, very nice of you to say that. Uh, listen, uh, uh, Java, any uh, any last comments before we uh, decide to end this segment? It's been great having you here. Well. Thank you so much. Uh, no, I think I'm. I think I'm good, man. I, I really want a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> well, your name is Java Jacobs. That's, it is. Uh, we gotta. We gotta please that side of things. But listen, uh, Nyawa Go for coming in. It's been great talking to you. Well, Nyawa. Just before we get to uh, get you a cup of Java in your hand, I just wanted to mention that uh, this is a reciprocal kind of relationship that's going on here at Element FM and K103 in Ganawage because you are running Moment of Truth. And we are, in fact, running some of your language programming. That's right. Uh, you run on our station, K1037 in Gahnawage, on Thursdays between 6 and 7 o'clock. And that's going to run, I think we have a, a 10-week trial period. But hopefully it, hopefully it goes a little longer than that because this is a great show. Well, thank you very much. We should certainly hope that it does well for you, and we uh, we look forward to hearing uh, your comments. We'll let you know how well you're doing. <laughs> thank you. That would be good, <laughs> good or bad, however if we want to hear about it. And uh, likewise, your language programming is running from 11 to midnight uh, here on Element FM. Yeah, so, on, on Wednesdays. Yeah. Nice. So, Goa uh, for all of that, and, uh, and it's been great speaking with you. Well, thank you again for having me. Look forward to having you back on again. All right, man. Ona. Ona. I also want to say Nyawa, Miigwech, Wanishi, and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy, and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Bruce Barber, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa, Miigwech, and thanks for listening.